0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Bottled Lightning. Don't extinguish the fire, don't shatter the vessel. and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 13th, 2007. I'm a Presbyterian. So I cringed when the evangelist Pat Robertson predicted hurricanes last year. When he stretches out the palms of his hands, squinches his eyes tight, and announces a healing for a specific person with a specific malady in a faraway city, I'm dubious. When he said that America should assassinate President Hugo Chavez of Venezuela and that Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon's stroke was God's punishment, for Israel's pullout from the Gaza Strip, I was totally flummoxed. Goofy is one thing, malevolent is another. Robertson's excesses tempt me to settle for what a friend once called functional deism. I'm not a real deist, mind you, but I can live, think, and act just like one. The 18th century deists like Thomas Jefferson believed in a supreme being who created the world, ordered it with the predictable laws of nature and morality, but then abandoned it like an absentee landlord. Deists reject the faintest whiff of a miracle and judged everything at the bar of reason alone. The deist God is remote, safe, and silent. He won't bother you. He won't intervene in human history or answer your prayers and he sure won't speak to you. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul claims in this week's reading from Acts, chapter 16, 9-15, that God spoke to him in a vision. Luke writes that God spoke to Paul and his companions three times. First, the Holy Spirit prevented them from preaching in Asia, verse 6, Then the Spirit of Jesus prohibited them from entering Bithynia, verse 7. And then Paul had his vision in which he saw a man standing on the seashore imploring, Come over to Macedonia and help us, verse 9. Paul concluded that God had spoken to them through that vision, and so they set sail. A few days later, when they landed in Philippi, the leading city of that district of Macedonia, it was the first time that Paul had set foot in Europe. The word for vision, horama, occurs 12 times in the New Testament, once in Matthew chapter 17 verse 9 and then 11 times in the book of Acts. In Acts, Paul had additional visions, as did Moses, Ananias, Cornelius, and Peter. Both Peter and Paul also say that God spoke to them in a quote-unquote trance, 11.5 and 22.17. And there's no indication, writes the historian Yaroslav Pelikan of Yale, quote, here or elsewhere in the book of Acts, that there would ever come a point in the history of the church when such visions and special revelations would cease, and in fact they did not cease, As a practical matter, I believe that Pat Robertson is way out of bounds when he invokes the authority of the Spirit of God. He's just too crazy for me, and if you ask me why, I would appeal to sanctified common sense. In principle, though, I admit the theoretical possibility that God could speak to Pat Robertson, or to me, or to you? Paul's Macedonian vision raises a tangle of honest and complex questions that do not have a simple answer. One of which is, how do you experience the fullness of the spirit, but avoid the crazy claims of a Pat Robertson and the colorless deism of a Thomas Jefferson? Back in the second century, A prophet named Montanus forced the institutional church to grapple with these questions. As the prevalence of signs, wonders, and miracles gradually waned in the decades after the apostles, people wondered was this God's will? Or maybe it was a consequence of the church becoming more bureaucratic? Montanus believed that the decline in the Spirit's manifestations resulted from the church's moral laxity in matters like divorce and fasting. The sect named after him, Montanism, was thus characterized by fanatical zeal, rigorous asceticism, and an excessive preoccupation with supernatural manifestations of the spirit. The most famous Montanist was the great African theologian, Tertullian, who lived in Carthage, in what is now modern-day Tunisia. Writing in the early 3rd century, Tertullian gives us a snapshot of the movement. Quote, We have among us now a sister who has been granted gifts of revelations, which she experiences in church during the Sunday services through ecstatic vision of the Spirit. After After the people have been dismissed at the end of the service, it is her custom to relate to us what she has seen." End quote. Church authorities responded to Montanism in two ways. First, derision, and second, denial. The historian Eusebius scorned those who, quote, "...rave in a kind of ecstatic trance." End quote. He dismissed what he called their bastard utterances as, quote, the demented, absurd, and irresponsible sayings of a presumptuous spirit. End quote. The Montanists, said Eusebius, babble in a jargon that is, quote, contrary to the custom of the church, which had been handed down by tradition from the earliest times. End quote. According to that early tradition, God speaks clearly, sufficiently, and reliably enough through three means the canon of scripture, the creeds of the councils, and the clergy of the church. Hippolytus, a contemporary of Tertullian who was martyred in Rome in 235, went even further. He taught that miraculous visions ended with the revelation of John, and, in effect, that the Holy Spirit worked differently now than in the apostolic days Our San Francisco Presbytery has 78 churches, but half of them struggle to survive. The Catholic Church faces a drastic shortage of priests. Meanwhile, in barely 100 years, what is broadly known as Charismatic or Pentecostal Christianity has burgeoned to include 525 million believers from every denomination and country in the world. Except for Catholics, and many Catholics are charismatic, Pentecostals constitute the largest distinct group of Christians, and they're still growing. Social scientists predict that in 50 years Pentecostals will number one billion believers. Grant Wacker, professor of history at Duke University, grew up in a Pentecostal family. And so he enjoys the critical detachment of a scholar, but also the advantages of the insider. In his marvelous book called "Heaven Below," Wacker explores how such a zealous, anti-intellectual, countercultural and divisive movement has not only flourished, has not only survived but flourished. He concludes that Pentecostals have done two things extremely well. First, they nourished, rather than discouraged, the primitive impulse of a deeply felt experience of God. And second, they created institutional means to channel that energy. So, for example, they held emotional prayer meetings, but built hospitals. They begged God for healing and founded colleges. They were both credulous and shrewd. In short, Pentecostals found ways to quote, bobble the lightning without stilling the fire or cracking the vessel, end quote. Paul put it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 19 to 22. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. And now for further reflection. Reflect upon the hymn by the Irish pastor and writer, George Crowley, a hymn which he wrote in 1854. Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. Wean it from earth through all its pulses move, stoop to my weakness mighty as thou art, and make me love thee as I ought to love. I ask no dream no prophet ecstasies, no sudden rending of the veil of clay, no angel visitant, no opening skies But take the dimness of my soul away. Hast thou not bid us love thee, God and King? All, all thine own, soul, heart, and strength, and mind. I see thy cross, there teach my heart to cling. O let me seek thee, and O let me find Teach me to feel that thou art always nigh. Teach me the struggles of the soul to bear. To check the rising doubt, the rebel sigh. Teach me the patience of unanswered prayer. Teach me to love thee as thine angels love. One holy passion filling all my frame the baptism of the heaven-descended dove, my heart and altar, and thy love the flame. For books this week, I review Joan Roughgarden, Evolution and Christian Faith, Reflections of an Evolutionary Biologist, Washington, D.C., Island Press, 2006, 155 pages. Joan Roughgarden, an evolutionary biologist at Stanford University since 1972 and an active Christian in her Episcopal Church, wrote this book, she says, to provide a succinct statement of exactly what evolutionary biology does and does not know and how the Bible relates to that scientific knowledge the book is short enough to read in a few sittings it has no footnotes at all avoids bogging down in secondary literature on the subject and is written at a level for people with a limited knowledge of science i especially i especially appreciated rough garden's ironic spirit at its simplest level Evolution teaches that all of life is related in one big family tree and that species change over space and time through natural breeding, as opposed to artificial breeding, for example, that farmers and others do today. Because of random mutations in the genes that are passed on from the original to the copies, changes occur, some of which are favorable and some of which are deleterious. These mutations are random, but whether the overall evolutionary process has any quote-unquote direction, good or bad, is hotly debated among evolutionary biologists, says Roughgarden. Finally, she thinks Darwin is badly wrong about universal sex roles in which aggressive males seek passive females in a competition of perpetual conflict. She argues that cooperation and interdependence are as important in nature as is conflict. Garden writes that there need not be any conflict between science and religion, or that they need to be relegated to separate spheres. Intelligent, de- intelligent design, she believes, invents problems that don't exist, is hard to take seriously, and so is a non-starter for mainstream science. She consigns intelligent design to what she calls junk science, along with many versions of so-called junk religion. As one might expect, Roughgarden shines when it comes to science, but less so on matters theological and biblical. But this is still a gem of a little book for those, as she says, who need to come up to speed on the subject for a Sunday school class or school board meeting, and it's heartening for a well-placed evolutionary biologist like her to publish such an unapologetic confession of Christian faith. Joan Roughgarden, Evolution and Christian Faith, Reflections of an Evolutionary Biologist. For film this week, I review The Lives of Others, a film from Germany. This debut film from the 33-year-old German director Florian Henkel von Donnersmarck won an Academy Award for Best Foreign Film for its portrayal of life under East Germany's Stasi, or Secret Police. At the beginning of the film, you're convinced that Captain Gerard Wiesler has to be the most merciless and manipulative interrogator possible. You would not want to be alone in a room with that man. He even teaches classes of young recruits about his craft. But by the end of the film, the lives of others have impacted his own lonely life, and Wiesler has become a compassionate human being who bucked the Stasi system. How his surveillance activities triggered this radical transformation is the subject of the film. All the supporting characters and plots are essential to the film's success, and not just add-ons. The writer Georg Dreiman and his actress girlfriend, Christa Maria Seelen, upon whom Wiesler spies and Wiesler's boss, Grubitz, who embodies the socialist bureaucracy without equivocation, and an even higher-up Minister of Culture who wants Christa for himself. The paranoia, the careerism, the sense of hopelessness and civic fear are all palpable in 1984 East Germany. The Lives of Others, in German with English subtitles, from the year 2006. And finally, we've posted a longer poem this week by the British poet Philip Larkin. Philip Larkin lived from 1922 to 1985, and the title of the poem is called Church Going. Once I am sure there's nothing going on, I step inside, letting the door thud shut. Another church, matting, seats, and stone, and little books, sprawlings of flowers cut for Sunday, brownish now, some brass and stuff up at the holy end, the small, neat organ and a tense, musty, unignorable silence. Brood God knows how long. Hatless, I take off my cycle clips in awkward reverence. Move forward. Run my hand around the font. From where I stand, the roof looks almost new. Cleaned or restored? Someone would know. I don't. Mounting the lectern, I peruse a few hectoring large-scale verses and pronounce here endeth much more loudly than I'd meant. The echoes snigger briefly. Back at the door I sign the book, donate an iris sixpence, reflect the place was not worth stopping for. Yet, Stop, I did. In fact, I often do, and always end up much at a loss like this, wondering what to look for. Wondering, too, when churches will fall completely out of use, what we shall turn them into, if we shall keep a few cathedrals chronically on show, their parchment, plate, and picks in locked cases and let the rest rent free to rain and sheep? Shall we avoid them as unlucky places? Or, after dark, will dubious women come to make their children touch a particular stone? Pick simples for a cancer, or on some advised night see walking a dead one. Power of some sort will go on in games, in riddles, seemingly at random. But superstition, like belief, must die. And what remains when disbelief has gone? Grass, weedy pavement, brambles, buttress, sky. A shape less recognizable each week. A purpose more obscure. I wonder who will be the last, the very last, to seek this place for what it was. One of the crew that tap and jot and know what rudlops were. Some ruined bibber, randy for antique, or Christmas attic, counting on a whiff of gown and bands and organ pipes and myrrh. Or will he be my representative? Bored, uninformed, knowing the ghostly silt dispersed, yet tending to this cross of ground through suburb scrubbed, because it held unspilt so long and equably what since is found only in separation, marriage, and birth, and death, and thoughts of these for which was built this special shell? For... Though I've no idea what this accoutred frosty barn is worth, it pleases me to stand in silence here. A serious house on serious earth it is, in whose blent air all our compulsions meet, are recognized and robed as destinies. And that much never can be obsolete, since someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious, in gravitating with it to this ground, which, he once heard, was proper to grow wise in, if only that so many dead lie round. The British poet Philip Larkin, in his poem going. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 6th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.